So Sierra and I are actually going to Morrow together to Emory University um, to listen to Franz Wall give a talk. Um, I forget what it's titled. I think it has something to do with empathy. Yes. But Franz Wall is actually our academic grandfather. Yep. Um, our advisor was advised by him, and he's done a lot of research on primates. Uh, he's very famous. Yeah. And so I feel like every paper I read, he's referenced at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Especially on capuchins and bonobos and chimpanzees. Like, yes. Um, just all over the place. And I'm excited because I've only ever heard stuff about him and seen him in videos, but I've never actually seen him in person. So it'll be cool to uh, to go. I wonder Sarah may or may not be there, but yeah, I'm not sure if she will be. I also heard he's a very good speaker. So maybe pick up some tips. Yes, on. that's true. It's true. Public speaking that I can yeah. use for. I'm doing a maid of honor speech at my friend's wedding next week. Oh. And so maybe I can use some of his techniques to captivate the audience nice. better. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a good time. You know, on the topic of, of the wedding, this is obviously something I guess we can talk about real quick is like the social lives of a PhD student. Um, yes. I know weddings are a little bit one of those things that are special events, but, uh, you know, where's the wedding and, and are you excited? And I'm very excited. Um, but it is in Oregon. Oh, wow. So I will have to f I fly from Atlanta to Oregon. So it's a pretty, it's a long flight. Yeah, I think it's actually fairly common for people in graduate school to be going to weddings because I feel like most it's people that, that we've gone, or at least most people that are in our cohort have at least gone to one or is having one. Yeah, that's so, true. I think it's a little bit more prevalent. Well, you're right years. at that prime age too, where a lot of people do their research PhD, like between 25 and 30 or 30, 25 mm -hmm. and 35, which is prime. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this, is, um, this is the prime time for, you know, getting married and stuff. So I feel like yes, that, you know, true. I mean, even I, like I have some, a marriage, uh, a marriage, a wedding coming up uh, for one of my <laughs> friends in November. So. Yeah, um, I definitely think though going back to like keeping up with a social life in grad school. Luckily, so far I've the pandemic kind of shut down a lot of social life in general. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> maybe it been harder to balance it in the past, but at least while we've been in grad school, I think you know, we don't have too many social events. So, since People are trying to social distance yeah. and stuff. So I, I think too, it is like you said, it's such an important part. I think it's so easy to come here, especially for a research PhD where it's not a nine to five job and nope. what you do consumes, can consume every hour of what you do. And so I think it's super important to be diligent and deliberate about mm -hmm. making time for social things. Mm -hmm. Advice from like Meg in our lab. I feel like she's always really good about making sure to tell us to always take time to ourselves and take time to like go do things like go to a soccer game or go to a football game or yes. go to bars or something like that. So shout out to Meg for always, I feel like I always take her advice on that, but I think it is important um, to, yeah. to do that. And it's also, I think something that as a student, there's not any set time. So you yourself actively choose when you're going to do mm -hmm. certain things. So that can be a little bit hard. I actually just read someone kind of being a little frustrated about it because they were also saying that a lot of people... So there's a lot of workshops and GSU does this as well, where it's like self-care in graduate school, how to maintain a social... Or like 
work-life balance and all this. And you, they have full-on workshops on this. And when you like take any of these workshops or anything like that, they put a lot of emphasis on you are the active participant in making time for yourself. And if you don't do that, you're the one who failed yourself. Mm-hmm. Where like that is kind of sad because, you know, we're only trying to live up to a certain standard that, I mean, maybe we set for ourselves or we, our advisor sets for us or something like that. And so, you know, it's a, it's not as strict or it's not as black and white as it's all you're doing because, you know, you are trying to please or like work and impress or like. And and also too, like we didn't get to this position by, not working hard and slacking off like we're all hard workers if we've gotten to this point and so it's i think it's oftentimes hardest for people who want to work hard and succeed to take time for themselves both socially and and also even just alone time too i think one thing that i did and i'm actually really glad that i did it was we were sending weekly updates to our advisor over the summer um, basically detailing what we were going to be doing that week and what we had accomplished the previous week, which I think was a great thing. I, it helped me kind of keep track of what I needed to do and what I was doing and and kind of really... Why? It made me realize how slow of a reader I was. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Or... I don't know. Oh, shit. Yeah, it sucked. <laughs> but uh, anyways, but... One thing I did towards the the week, our last week of summer before classes, I actually, I sent my weekly update and I said, I'm not actually doing anything this week. Um, Good for you. Yeah. So I just like little things like that, right? You do have to be deliberate with it, but yeah. also echoing what you said, right? It's not all your fault. It's not black and white. Like you're not taking the time for yourself, right? Yeah. You're pressured to do a lot of things and yeah. pressure to succeed. And so it's not, doesn't all fall on you. There's a lot of weight on your shoulders, but yeah. always try and remember when you're in this position to, or any position too, whether it's a PhD or whether it's a job, take time for yourself. Yeah. Um, and most people it. are not good at putting boundaries on themselves. I know I'm not mm-hmm. good at laying down bad boundaries because I'm a people pleaser. So, <laughs> and don't be afraid to say yes to social things, but also don't be afraid to say no to social things too. Yeah. So, just learning that balance. That's very true. Anyways, well, today, this will be our first episode on a research article that just came out. Um, This is something that we're going to do here on Monkey Business, where we actually talk about a research article that's been published either recently or maybe is historically critical to the field and uh, just kind of talk about it, talk about what we thought about the paper, talk about our interpretations as well as things that we might have done differently or things that we really liked. Um, And so just kind of keeping you guys up to date on some of the most recent primary research. It is definitely going to be more of a technical episode. So for those who are maybe not so much into the primatology field, we apologize. Feel free to skip this one and watch another one or feel free to listen in and maybe you'll learn something. But yeah, um, I also think sometimes it's good to break it down in a way that's a little bit more digestible. All right. Well, without further ado, we'll go ahead and jump right in. So, Matt, which article do we have today? All right. So what I'm actually going to do, I'll give you guys the title and the authors 
uh, to the best of my ability, because sometimes the names, especially in this paper, are a little bit maybe hard to pronounce, and I might get them wrong. I apologize. Uh, I'll just go ahead and read the abstract too, just so we all are kind of starting off with the same kind of basis about what the paper is about. Because the abstracts are usually a good place to get a summary of what the paper was about, what they found, um, and even uh, maybe a one sentence about what they interpreted too. So the paper uh, will be is titled On Experimental Tests for Studying Altruism in Capuchin Monkeys. And it's by Benoit Buker, Hika Kuroshima, James Anderson, Kazu Fujita. Like I said, might have pronounced some of those wrong, so I apologize. But they are out of the Department of Psychology at Kyoto University in Kyoto, Japan. I'll go ahead and read the abstract. Altruism is often considered as the ultimate form of prosociality and is defined as any act that benefits others without direct benefits to the actor. Many non-human species have been reported to express different forms of altruism, although their expression in experimental studies is highly dependent on the paradigms used. Tufted capuchin monkeys are one of the most studied species. However, the evidence for altruism in this species remains inconclusive. This study aimed to investigate whether two paradigms, adapted from those in which great apes have shown altruism, could be useful for revealing signs of altruistic capabilities in capuchins. Pairs of monkeys were tested in two experiments involving a similar mechanism, but with different costs to acting altruistically. The first used a more costly operant sharing task in which an operator could unlock a door to allow a recipient to enter the room and share his food. The second consisted of a less costly helping task in which the operator's food was secured, but he could help the recipient to get other food that was in a locked container. The results suggest that capuchins, although apparently unwilling to share their food in a costly operant situation, might altruistically help selected recipients in response to requesting by the latter. Basically, that's just saying that they might be helping selective recipients whenever they receive a response from that recipient. While our small sample size, along with procedural limitations, preclude firm conclusions, we discuss how further ameliorations of our task could further contribute to the study of altruistic capacities in primates. One thing I do want to point out here is something that I thought of first when they're talking about an operant sharing task, an operant as in an operator on the task, mm -hmm. someone doing the task. I know with some of my psychology background, I thought this was like operant learning task. Mm, so yeah. like you are learning something, but that's not what this task is at all. Yeah. Just wanted to point that out. Yeah. <laughs> so it's actually, as someone who's done a little bit of reading into this field, a lot of times they'll actually call it instrumental helping is a term that I use more because I'm the same way, right? I get confused with like operant conditioning. Instrumental helping is just like giving another individual an instrument right. um, that can <laughs> then sense. operate on something. Uh, that's where the operant comes in. I'll usually use instrumental helping in terms of this paper, but so essentially what this experiment did is they ran capuchins through diff two different kinds of tasks, one of which they could unlock a door and their partner could come share the food that they had. So you have the, the donor and the recipient and the donor could unlock the door so that the recipient could come in and eat the food that, the, that was originally the donors. And then the other task they had it so that the donor always had access to his food and it would never go away and it would never be eaten by the recipient, but instead he could still 
give an instrument, instrumental helping to his partner who then could use that to unlock a door and access food themselves. That's where they were talking about. There's two different costs to the uh, procedures, right? So altruism is like pro-sociality where it, it helps an individual, but to a cost at a cost to the donor. In this case, the cost in the first experiment was you're actually literally giving access to your food to another individual, which is a costly behavior to you. And then in the second one, it's less costly, um, which is what they were talking about in the abstract, where they are still having to take time and make the effort to give their partner the, the instrument, but they're actually not going to lose any food from that. It's just kind of looking at that. And so those are the, the two main experiments that they ran with the capuchins. They really made a point in the introduction to talk about the two different types of where one is like an active kind of food sharing and the other one's a more passive food sharing. Yeah. And from my understanding, the passive food sharing is basically them eating food. And if they drop the food, they'll let their friend take the food if they want it. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually passive food sharing. It's like simply put as the tolerance to allowing an individual to take food that you're not actually possessing, but it's nearby to you. So like usually what happens is like, like in capuchins, you'll see them like drop food and you'll see like another capuchin, like come up and take the food that's fallen onto the ground. That would be like passive food sharing. Cause what, like, for example, Logan, one of our capuchin monkeys could just as easily aggress towards another monkey who's trying to take that food that he dropped, but his tolerance to allow them to take it is what's passive food sharing. Right. So is that tolerance like the cost of it? Cause like, so I think a little bit on when I get hung up on, when I like try to understand what altruism is, is they mm -hmm. say like, it's a, it's a cost to the actor. Yes. And to me, when I think of passive food sharing, I don't really think of a lot of cost. Yeah, so the, the cost involved in food passive food sharing would be that in the Logan example, Logan would know if Logan drops a sweet potato and someone else takes it, the cost is he no longer can have that sweet potato. Okay. So, um, you know, it, this is where it gets a little bit dicey too, right? Like yeah. some people, I, some people have argued that passive food sharing is really not all that pro-social. You're mm -hmm. just dropping food and then choosing not to act in an antisocial manner. Um, but does the absence of antisocial behavior like aggression really constitute personal behavior? It's a question. I don't know. You can kind of have your opinion on it either way, but uh, yeah. it's something that's looked at. Sometimes I get hung up on it a little bit where, I don't know, it instinctually you think of uh, like doing an altruistic act because, you know, like we mentioned before, the kind of classic examples are donating to a charity or things mm -hmm. like that. You're, there's an active component to yes, it. Yeah. And so sometimes I think about that where there are, and it, it would depend on what kind of costs you think of as well. Like yeah. passive food sharing, if you think of like energetic costs, for example, maybe it's actually less energetically costly yep. for you to just let that animal take the food rather than having to aggress them. So sometimes it depends, I guess, on what level you look at. But I thought about that while reading this Yeah, paper. well, that's why there's also a lot of discrepancy with, like, with words like altruism, for example. And it totally depends on how you define it. 
That's the other thing, right? I think they define it as any act that benefits others without providing a direct benefit to the actor. But there are some, and I like to define altruism for me as when there's a cost associated to the actor. They don't seem to identify that here or define it in that way here. But you're right. It's kind of hard. There can be so many different factors that factor into cost benefit that it's like, you know. Yeah. And one thing that also makes me stumble a little bit is just because there's a cost for the actor does not necessarily mean there's no benefit to the actor as well. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think that gets me hung up a little bit because sometimes I think, oh, if there's a cost, there can't be a benefit. But you can have cost and benefit. Yeah. In order and to be and it's interesting in this paper that they define it as any act that benefits others without direct benefit to the actor. And that's the key word there because there are always, there are likely benefits to every altruistic act that we can't necessarily determine, but it's talking about direct benefit, mm-hmm. which is something that we can see and measure. But for example, them providing food to another individual could if the cognitive mechanisms are present in non-human primates and specifically in this paper in capuchins, it could provide a relationship building or a reputation effect, but that's something that we can't always directly see, nor do we like know for sure that it's happening. So it's kind of one of those things that like we're just making our best assumption. Well, and actually that's one thing that they mentioned in this paper when they chose their dyads, mm-hmm. which I did want to actually bring up because their subjects were specifically always the dominant male Mm -hmm. because they wanted to specifically avoid intimidation or future punishment from the dominant to the Mm -hmm. subordinate subjects beyond this task. Yes. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And, And a lot of that's rooted in going back to the reputation effects, sort of. There are some really good papers on chimpanzees, not capuchins, where they see that chimpanzees are when they're trying to decide which partner they want to help that what they essentially do is they train one partner to always help. And Mm -hmm. they're not actually, they're, they're trained to help the individual. So in terms of the actor, it looks like there's this helpful individual and then they pair him with a individual who has been trained to never help. And based on past relationships and they find that the chimpanzees are actually more willing to help that previously reciprocating partner or that helpful partner more so than they are to help the non-helpful partner. So there is this idea that the cognitive mechanism is there in chimpanzees, um, still not confirmed, still people debate about it, but it's it's definitely something that's possible in capuchins. But you're right. They I like that they did that too. And they were referencing that, I think inadvertently, right? Is they they wanted to say, like, we don't know if there are these reputation effects or possible long-term effects of rep of uh, revenge or retribution or spite from the dominant. So we just were going to keep things consistent and use the dominant males. I do wonder though, if only using the dominant males does also change the results, change the results mm-hmm. a little yeah. bit because they do talk about how, and it wasn't in the context of why they chose to only uh, test or have the dominant male be the subject and a subordinate be a recipient because they specifically said that one of the like less dominant dominant males was more pro social mm-hmm. than the more dominant males. Yeah. So I think that might bring into question like 
which I don't know if it's been looked at, but if dominance, mm-hmm. you know, is related to how pro-social you are. Yes. So there actually has been research into that. The The crazy thing is both effects have been found. So I don't remember the direction, but for example, macaques direct their pro-social behavior down the hierarchy one way. Chimpanzees and capuchins direct it a different way. And so there have been hierarchy uh, effects of the hierarchy looked at into in an individual's willingness or propensity to be pro-social. But yeah not as much research as some other factors, but it's definitely a factor that is worth looking into even more and more because we don't really have clear answers and only a couple studies have actually really kind of looked at it and been like, oh, we found an effect where they they direct pro-social behavior up the hierarchy or down the hierarchy. So yeah. um, definitely one of those things that needs further researching. And since pro-social behavior um, is so context dependent, it's something that without a doubt, hierarchy probably has some some play in it. Um, right. But another thing is too, right? Like you're right. They're using only dominant males. And so realistically, the results that they get are really only applicable to dominant males. I mean, you can start to generalize them, of course, but it's also a way of controlling for things, right? You, you, they want to keep that consistent between individuals so that whatever they find, they can't then attribute to, well, you know, we tested a, a subordinate female, a dominant female and a dominant male. And like, then all of a sudden you have all these confounds and it's like, well, maybe they were per- pro-social because of this. And so it's also, you'll see that in a lot of pro-social studies where they control for one factor and that in this one, they were just like, let's use dominant males and let's just be consistent. So anything that we see is not an effect of sex or rank or any of that kind of stuff, but rather an effect that we were actually trying to detect. So that's yeah. probably why they did it too. But also the added benefit of the revenge or retribution that might have come from a dominant if you had not used a dominant male. Right. I will say another, and this is going back to the idea of active and passive food sharing, and then also the cost. Something that I actually really enjoyed about this paper was the more costly behavior, which was where you can let a partner in to share food with you is actually the passive food sharing. Yeah. Whereas in the, their other experiment is a less costly behavior, but is in, in a way an active form of food sharing sort of, because it's instrumental helping. So it's not exactly active food sharing, but like you've got to actively hand your partner the instrument that they need to unlock their food. So it's kind of this weird thing where it's like the passive food sharing, which is much more common than active food sharing in this paradigm is the more costly behavior than the active food sharing. So it kind of flips that stuff on its head, which I kind of actually really liked and it gives it a different perspective because I don't think that that's been done in any pro-social experiments yet. So it was cool. I like that part of it, but I did want to talk about training because so they do, they do train the monkeys in this task. Um, I don't remember the exact details of their training. I think for the most part, because it was a, like these monkeys hadn't used the key apparatus Mm -hmm. before. It was mostly training to get them to understand how that mechanism worked. Yeah. And that's so that that brings up a topic about pro-social research that is a big deal. And it's been talked about a lot in reviews and hypothesized about. But essentially, you have to walk a fine line in pro-social primate pro-social behavior research between overtraining and undertraining. You know, if you undertrain, you run into the problem of they might not understand the contingency of the apparatus that you're using, but your effect that you're going to see 
is going to be less likely as a result of some other mechanism, whether that's like being classically conditioned or them being used to a reward or an expectation of a reward. Whereas if you overtrain them, you know for sure that they understand the contingency of the apparatus, but you risk them developing these expectations about the apparatus. And so this actually, this paper did something pretty cool where, and I agree with this, they said to minimize any potential reward value that might be attributed to the key after the training phase, no exchange of the key for the food reward was made during the final training phase. However, now that's great, but I will say that they trained these in four consecutive 20 trial sessions, which might be a lot. So this paper, which we'll get into in a second, actually found results that were not exactly prosocial. And it's possible that they were expecting the rewards to come from this key because of how much they were trained. And then when all of a sudden they got into the testing environment, even though the last, the last training phase, they did not get a reward, that, that might have been salient, salient enough for them to stop wanting to participate because they were expecting a reward from the previous 60 trials that they had done and trained in. So it's kind of this weird, do you see how it kind of gets this weird, this, this fine line of being able to overtrain them versus undertrain them. And you got to walk right down the middle because yeah. if you don't, you might get results that are like, ah, like you just don't know. Right. Yeah. So um, I know that's like one of the things I struggle with when writing protocols is the training aspect of it. Like the task. I'm like, oh yes, I know what I want to do for a task, but how am I going to get them to do the task without also, you know, in an, in an essence, if you're doing a pro-social task, without training them to be pro-social yep. or seem to be pro-social. And the thing is, you have to decide, right? As an yeah. experimenter. So this is so close to home because my master's, I'm actually doing one training session. I'm going to then observe how that behavior changes over time in the testing condition. And yes, of course, I risk that they will not learn the contingency of the task, but I'm limiting the possibility that they're gaining an expectation from their training. Whereas like Mackenzie uh, Webster, who just graduated from her lab, she her dissertation was on a um, pro-social choice task in capuchins. And she was looking specifically at like competitive and cooperative environments that happen before prior to testing and how that affects pro-social behavior. She actually found no results of pro-social behavior, but she really trained the capuchins on the contingencies and how to use the apparatus. Right. And so one of the things that she talks about in her paper, which I don't think has been published yet, but is that this idea that they might've been overtrained. She did that on purpose though, because she wanted to make sure that whatever effect she found, it wasn't going to be some result of them not knowing what the apparatus was. So it's this fine line. You got to the ebb and flow and you got to make sure you do it just right. And you got to have a justification for which way you're going to do it. So, so let's maybe talk about the results from the first experiment. Yes. And that was the food sharing one where they had to use the key to open the door to let their partner into their cage. Yes. So the first result is one that might be overlooked, but it's important. So first they observed in the absent condition, how much food was consumed. And they found that all of their food was consumed in nearly all of the absent trials. So in this case, right, so they're they're giving their same apparatus, same room set up where they can unlock the door, but there's not a partner. And they wanted to make sure that the amount of food they were giving them was being consumed. 
And so basically that what that's showing is that it's an altruistic behavior because it's showing that when a partner is present, if they do open the door, that that capuchin will then endure a cost. Because if they normally eat all the food and all of a sudden they let a monkey in, that cost is going to come into food. So that's actually really important result number one is, is making sure that this behavior is enduring a cost, right? Because if they provided them with too much food and they were never finishing it, even in the absent trials, all of a sudden, if they unlock the door, it's like, well, is this really costly behavior to them? They weren't going to finish all the food anyways. So that's important result number one. It's a good point. Yeah. And they definitely didn't talk about that very much. <laughs> yeah, it was just in the first paragraph. They did say, though, these results indicate that all of the food was consumable by a single individual. And so opening the door would cause the operator to lose some of his food. And that's going back to what we were talking about when we were talking about passive food sharing, that the yeah. cost then is yeah. not having the food. Yeah. So uh, results, Hygie, which was one of the males, never opened the door when the food was present in his cage. So he always ate his food, all of it, before he would ever allow another monkey to come in with him. Pigman, who is another one, opened the door significantly less often with a recipient present than when he was tested alone. So showing, that's pretty typical in prosocial. We talked about that in the last episode where they usually test the absent condition, comparing it to the partner present condition. So basically, Pigman opened it less when there was a partner there than when it was no partner. That kind of goes into the point where like, you want to make sure that they're not just opening the door because they like opening the door. Yeah. Or yeah, for lots of different reasons like that. Yeah. And then for Zinnia, which is the third and final male, uh, frequencies of openings followed the same trend and they were only about 14.58% in the recipient condition and they were about 31.25% in the absent condition. So showing that in this food sharing experiment, basically none of the three capuchin monkeys that they tested were really more so than the absent condition willing to let their partner into the room to share food with them. I think overall they had concluded that given these results, the capuchins didn't really want to share their food yeah, when they had yeah. access to it. Basically it suggests that those actors were unwilling to forfeit a high value food to their recipients. That's kind of what we got from the first experiment. So, yes. so then the second experiment, which is the instrumental helping task where they can give the key to the partner um, at no cost to themselves, at no food cost to themselves. Of course, there's an energetic cost and a time cost of giving the instrument to the other individual. And in this one, what did they find? So basically, high G revealed significant main effects of recipient identity and condition. Mm -hmm. So Hygie opened the container more frequently when a recipient was present, and that was also dependent on the identity of the recipient. In the other two dominant males, they actually did not open and help the individual significantly more than in the absent condition. So those results more line up with the previous experiment on the food sharing but if you do look at the graph, you do see that Pigman, for example, helped Theta more so than when in an absent condition and, same, and, and helped Kiki a lot too. So there were no significant differences between the absent and present. But if looking at the data, you can see that in some instances, the alpha males did donate more. Um, at least Pigman and Hygie did. Zinnia did not really. Zinnia actually preferred to only unlock it in the absent condition. But 
this still has some important implications with regards to prosocial behavior, specifically in recipient identity and signaling. So in the logistic regression analysis, they revealed that the requesting behavior significantly affected opening ratios for all operators. This actually goes back to a really big part of primate prosocial behavior is that they believe at least most of the data points to this idea that signaling of some sort is an important factor that causes increase in personal behavior. So if the recipient is able to signal somehow to the donor, they find in a lot of experiments that this causes the donor to be pro-social. I could see, you know, with your friend, it's like, how will your friend know that you need help unless you ask for it? So I mean, yeah. 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 I mean, it goes, it's for, through humans too, right? Uh, you, sometimes you'll never know something's affecting someone until they say something and they speak up. So it is a pretty pervasive thing in primate personal literature where it looks at signaling. And I think even in this, in one of the suggestions in their discussion, they say that in future primate personal literature, you should try and keep track of signaling because they found that it was an important factor. I wonder if the signal was maybe more of a pestering and Mm. an annoyance. So in order to get rid of this annoying stimulus, I'm going to give you your food, kind of like, you know, a human with a baby and giving them a pacifier. So that was one thing I was thinking of, like, Initially, I was like, oh, that's so cool. They were like, yes, I'll be more pro-social to you because you're letting me know that you need or that you would like more food. Mm -hmm. But then I thought about it. I was like, well, what if it's just they're trying to just stop whatever this signal is Mm -hmm. instead of having a, I don't know. Happy pro-social. Well, (laughs) what a what a Great insights here because there is actually papers that look at that. Oh, um, <laughs> so and there's papers that have critiqued other papers that have looked at the signaling hypothesis and examined was this a result of them trying to was it a an attempt to reduce the aversive stimuli of them being annoying? Yeah, or was this a I'm signaling my intent and my intent is to get food. And then the receive the donor is able to better understand the receiver's um, intent, so therefore it donates food. It's a very fine line. Unfortunately, yeah. there's normally a way to you know, there's yeah, no way there to actually no know. But there are papers that have looked at that. Oh, I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, I've definitely read it, and I think there's one or two. And there's definitely some that have critiqued previous studies about this signaling hypothesis, basically saying that, um, yeah. So, oh, cool. The other thing, yes. however, though, is recipient identity. Which is something that I, and, and honestly, kind of relates a lot to your research too, Sierra. You are interested in it once I have my whole profiles I, on everybody. I know. Yeah. Please have at it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it's this idea that, and it goes back to human prosocial behavior too. Humans are not unanimously prosocial. And if you think about times that you act in a prosocial manner, you humans in actual scientific research will help those that they are closely related to either through kinship or friendship. And so um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that primates do something very similar. So for example, in the case for Hygie and significantly donating more to like Kiki, then when Kiki is absent, it's like, well, maybe Hygie and Kiki have a good relationship, right? So it's kind of looking at this social relationship, which has been reviewed 
once again reviewed in the Kate Cronin's review in 2012, but also in Humans in a paper by Jennifer Bartz in 2011. She looked at oxytocin's effects on personal behavior and how it's um, maybe dependent upon your partner. And so, yeah, it's a pretty cool little thing. And going back to that a little bit, I also wanted to say I could see it not only because you were saying with individuals that have closer relationships or with kin, but I also am curious about certain just groups in general. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I think of is, you know, if we're talking about like donations, I think a lot of people are very willing to donate towards funds that help children or that help animals or something like that. And so I wonder if there's like also any kinds of like group level biases as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, that's a great point too. And I just, it's, I always think back to humans and I think I said this in the last episode, right? I think back to the times that I act pro-socially. I think I even used this example last time. I'd be much more likely to help you than some random Joe Schmo that I've walked across the street. Now, granted, you know, sometimes there are those very random people that you don't even know that you act pro-socially towards. But if I had the choice between helping Sierra, who I am friends with, versus helping some other person that I don't know, I'm going to help you preferentially. And that is seen in humans. And so I do think that it's present in capuchins. And so that's kind of this paper's kind of one of the main cool takeaways from this paper is that, is that it could be something. They didn't look at it in depth, but something that could be done in future research. I also don't think they had enough power to really make it a significant effect if it was an effect that was present. Mm -hmm. Since they only had uh, three operators. Yeah, they only had three uh, donors. That is pretty much all I think we have to talk about. Unless yeah. there's anything else you had? No. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, well, we appreciate you guys all listening and hope you guys learned something new about uh, capuchin prosocial behavior and instrumental helping and altruism. And we'll see you guys again next week for another episode of Monkey Business. Peace. <laughs>